0: me to Matthew 20. we We're gonna, well, Let's pray as we begin. Gracious Father, thank you for this time we can gather as your people. Lord, we do pray for the miracle of humility. Lord, we do pray that we will not only sing with our voices, but that our hearts will sing that you alone are worthy of praise. Behold, the Lamb of God is worthy of all worship. You alone, God, are the one who has revealed to us who you are and how you are to be worshipped, how you are to be approached. You are a holy God, but we come to you through the person and work of your Son, Jesus Christ. So, Father, even now as we come, teach us to worship you, teach us to love you. Father, teach us to humble ourselves so that we might seek your kingdom as your people. Lord, we know your kingdom has come in the person of Jesus Christ, and yet it is coming. So, Father, while we're in between the times, while we wait, we wait with expectation. We wait knowing that You are working all things together according to Your perfect plan and purposes. Father, I pray that You will help us to settle our hearts as Brother Mike has said earlier, our hearts are, are fickle. They run in various ways, or we think in various ways, various lines. So Lord, fix our hearts upon you and your promises. Let us remember that you have not left us, not forsaken us, and that you are faithful. Lord, we thank you for your word. I pray that you will open our eyes to see its beauty Father, I pray that the people will hear a far better sermon than the one that I've prepared. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart will be pleasing in your sight. You are my Lord. You are our Lord and our rock and our Redeemer. Father, we thank you for these things. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I know that was a bit of a trick for me. I didn't mean to tell you to turn to Matthew 20, and then tell you to close your eyes while we pray. So I'm sorry about that. Um, But now you can turn to Matthew 20 if you're not there already. We are diving back into the Gospel of Matthew, as you might have figured. We're not going to make it through the whole book, but um, next couple weeks we're going to pick a few different themes out of the next few chapters, and we are going to end with Matthew 28 um, eventually knowing that Jesus is with us to the end of the age. He has not left us. He has not forsaken us. He will guide His people. He will lead His people. And as we gather as His people, one of the things I love about this church is that the Word of God is central in the church. The Word of God must not just be central in the church, but it must be central in the pulpit. And as the pastor brings the Word, I pray that we will keep the Word of God central in the pulpit. Well, this morning in Matthew 20, we are going to see what Jesus has been continually referring to as the kingdom of God. Does anybody remember the the synonym of the other thing he refers to as kingdom of God? This is uh, time to respond. Kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven. All right. Gold star, Dennis. So kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, he refers to it today as the kingdom of heaven. And we seek the kingdom of God. We seek the kingdom of heaven by imitating and following our Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's begin. Would you stand with me as we honor the reading and preaching of God's holy word? We're not going to look at the whole chapter as I often do. I probably bit off more than I can chew. But we're going to look at the first 16 verses and then verses 20 through 28. Beginning in verse 1. Matthew writes these words, The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the market place. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too. Whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You can go into the vineyard too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. And then, skipping down to verse 20, another story. This time of a mother, two sons, and Jesus. Verse 20. The mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him, that is to Jesus, with her sons. Kneeling before him, she asked him for something. He said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. When the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Amen. You may be seated. So again, we have a lot of ground to cover this morning, but as you can see in the first section and even in the second section, or the third section, if you will, of the chapter, there's some similar themes that I'd like to tie together here. Some of those themes are God's sovereignty, God's generosity, His mercy. All of these things we are looking at the character of God specifically, but also the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. What does that look like? So here, as Jesus teaches through a parable or a story, He's teaching us not just about the owner, the the master of the vineyard, and His generosity, but as Jesus often does, He's teaching us multiple things. He's teaching us about the Father, our Heavenly Father, and His generosity and His mercy. And so, just to give you a glimpse of what we are going to look at here, there's multiple truths um, that we see about God's character. In this story. So let's dive in. In verse 1, we see what the kingdom of heaven is like. We've seen in various chapters what the kingdom of heaven is like, but here he shares the story of a vineyard, of a vine. And it's important to take note that Israel was referred to as the vine or the vineyard of God in different Old Testament books. And so again, multiple ways of seeing what truths God is highlighting here. But here the vineyard represents the labor of the kingdom in this world. The labor of the kingdom in this world. And here we're going to see the character of God, what the kingdom of God looks like, and our roles, not just as laborers, but as disciples who follow God's word. So as we look at the vineyard, again, we don't have many vineyards in our area. I looked up vineyards in this area and there's one I guess supposedly close to Aniston that's that's renowned for their wine. Maybe you're aware of it. I wasn't aware of that. But um looking at vineyards, this was a detailed process for these grape bearing vines to produce wine making and other things. There is a lot involved of so planting, preparing, pruning, and of course harvesting. So the master needs many workers. He goes, he hires laborers, and he sets a wage with them. The wage was set. They agreed upon the wage. Just like if you were to hire someone out, here's the wage, here's the contract, this is what I'll pay you at the end of the time, end of the day. So the wage was a denarius. Now, we don't deal with denarius today, that's not our common wage, but a denarius was a fair wage. Because the Roman soldiers would receive a denarius a day. So it was a fair wage for them to go out into the vineyard to work. So the first workers who go out, they work vigorously. They work diligently. They're ready to receive their denarius. But as the story goes on, the master goes out into the marketplace to hire more workers. Again, a lot of work needs to be done. You know, There's pruning, there's preparing, there's um, picking. All this needs to take place. And he goes out into the 6th hour, which is noon. The ninth hour, which is 3. And the 11th hour, which is 5 o'clock, to get workers. Now, you you can probably wonder, the people who were hired first, when he goes out to get somebody at at the 11th hour, they're probably thinking, when is quitting time today? You know, this is going to be a long day. But as he hires all of these people, he sends them out, To do work. And then at verse 8, we see them come collect their pay for the day. The last one hired come to get their wages first. Again, only worked probably about an hour. But they come and they get their wage and it's a denarius. So they go happy about their way. But then in verse 10 is where it gets real, I guess you could say. In verse 10... Those hired first come. And what did they think? Well, if he got a denarius, well, I'm surely going to get three. Because I've worked three times as hard as he has. They're not very happy. And they uh, they thought they would receive more. And in verse 11, it says, they begin to grumble. They begin to grumble because they thought they were treated unfairly. They thought I I worked here harder. I worked here longer. In fact, they say, we worked during the hottest part of the day. You know, we were out there during the scorching heat. So what do they do? They grumble and complain. It's interesting that it's always amazing sometimes to me how when you're praying, or when you're reading your devotion, or maybe you're preparing for a lesson, maybe you're preparing or you're reading another book outside the Bible, how these different themes can come together. Or somebody shares with you uh, a word that they've been encouraged by. It's always amazing to me how these can intersect. And so I've been reading a book by Ed Welch about, um, it's, a, it's called A Small Book About a Big Problem About Anger. And uh, I just read a book, uh, I just read a devotion recently about grumbling. And he points out there about we often grumble thinking that's not a big deal. You know, at least I didn't kill anybody. And and so he gives, gives the illustration of the children of Israel. We could go throughout the Old Testament seeing where God promises something to them. And they grumble, and they whine, and they complain. And particularly, he highlights Numbers chapter 14. He says, Israel grumbled when they're about to leave the wilderness and to go into the rich land that God had promised them. You're leaving wilderness and going into the rich land God promises you. They grumble, and they forget the promises God had told them. So we must not forget God's promises. We must not forget what God has said. We must trust His promises. Ed Welch says this about grumbling. We usually think our grumbling is justified by the poor service we received, the bad weather, the long line where we are in when we are in a hurry. We think we are doing fairly well because we are merely grumpy and only muttering under our breath. But our grumbling is against God, it holds Him in contempt. It's a way in which we despise Him. So, this is a big deal. We're not to despise God, we are to worship Him. How do we do that? One of the most powerful things that we can say is, Thank you, God. The powerful thing we can say to somebody else is, Thank you. Thank you is a display of humility. But when we grumble, we are saying, I'm the judge. This is wrong. This is not right. And we cannot see what all God is doing in any situation. We're not the judge. We must trust God in moments when we're tempted to believe life is not fair, I'm being cheated out of something. Grumbling is often accompanied by envy and greed. We want what they have. A denarius or whatever it might be. We feel like we're cheated. But again, we must remember God is gracious. He is merciful. Again, we deserved wrath, but we received forgiveness and grace, grace upon grace. So as a result, we must turn from grumbling and show the world who we are as followers of Christ. We are forgiven. We have been given much. And we have been given much more than we deserve. This is why Paul says to the believers at Philippi and Philippians 2, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Well, Jesus is about to show us what lights in the world look like as we finish up our story. Thanks for the little Diversion there. As we get back to verse 13, the master of the vineyard, he approaches those grumbling and complaining, and we don't get into this back and forth, I said this, you thought this. No, he doesn't, they don't get into this argument there. What does he say in verse 13? He says, Friend, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. And I don't think it was a sarcastic friend. You know, it wasn't a malicious friend. It was, friend what what did we agree on and so he calls him friend yet despite the fact that his judgment and character is called into question so the wrong is not with the owner or the, or the master it's with those who are grumbling and having a haughty spirit so we must not miss the the point of this passage it's not about a fair wage or a worker laborer a worker master relationship It's about the generosity and mercy of the owner to his workers. In fact, that's what we see here in verse 15. He says, do you begrudge my generosity? So again, we must see the generosity and the mercy of the master to the laborers. But again, if we look at the bigger picture here, Jesus is teaching us not just about the master's mercy in the vineyard, but about the father's mercy in the kingdom. This is what the focus is on here. The Father's mercy in the kingdom. And we get a glimpse of that. You know, again, Jesus is teaching sometimes to others listening, Pharisees, scribes, but he's also teaching another lesson to the disciples that are there. And we see a a sermon within a sermon, a lesson within a story in verse 16 when he says, the last will be first and the first last. This is what we just read a few weeks ago in chapter 19. Many who are first will be last and the last first. So there are many applications that we could be derived from this verse. But we should take note in God's kingdom those who are invited and welcomed in are done so by God's sovereign mercy. In the book of Romans, God says, I'll have mercy upon those I will have mercy. And so whether it is young Timothy who grew up in the faith with a mother and a grandmother who taught him the faith. We, we, you know, we're tempted to think, well, yeah, of course he should be in the kingdom. This is a good kid, a moral kid who knows the truth, who served and labored amongst us. Yeah, of course he's in the kingdom. But then there's something that kind of strikes us the wrong way when the thief on the cross is allowed into the kingdom. And so, of course, we say, yes, he's allowed into the kingdom, But we say that because Jesus said today you'll be with me in paradise. And so that's a little bit maybe abstract, a little bit too spiritual for us. But when it's a neighbor or a friend who we think, I don't know, I wouldn't forgive him. Why would Jesus? But here we see the last will be first and the first last. In other words, it's by God's sovereign mercy. Timothy, thief on the cross, both in the kingdom, not on their merit, not on their morals, but on the blood of Jesus Christ. So there is much that we could draw from here, but let's continue on in the passage. In verses 17 through 19, Jesus predicts his death. Again, reminding them that he is going to the cross. He would be judged, mocked, flogged, and ultimately crucified. But in verse 19, just as Mike said earlier, just as we sang of, Jesus will rise from the dead. He will be raised on the third day and he will be seated at the hand of his father. Just as we sang, uh Paul's always picking out great songs, Behold Our God. It's like, wow, this goes so well with the passage this morning. So Jesus will be raised on the third day. So we are reminded that Jesus is is pointing us towards the cross. And then we get a glimpse of the kingdom that is yet to come, beginning in verse 20. In verses 20 through 28, our last section this morning, we see a fascinating exchange between a mother and Jesus. Again, we see mercy and humility um, in this section. And the mother comes to Jesus. I'm sure you've heard this, read this before. And the mother, just like most mothers... Is proud of her children. You know, not most mothers are going to say, Look at my boy, look at my daughter, look at what they've done. Well, this mother comes with a bold request. She comes humbly, but she makes this ambitious request. She says to Jesus, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. So she sees the kingdom is coming. She knows on some level, who Jesus is. And she makes this bold request. Well, Jesus responds quickly and directly to the request. And what, is, what does Jesus say? He says here, in verse 22, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able, Are you able to drink the cup that I'm to drink? So these two men, are they able to do what I'm about to do. They wanted to share in Jesus' reward, but they did not consider that they must first share in Jesus' suffering. The cup here refers to the suffering, and Jesus tells the mother, the sons do not know what you are asking. They do not know the cost that's associated with what will take place. So likewise, again, we too can be like the mother, making bold requests, making bold prayers, not considering what is required of us. They thought they were able to fulfill all that Jesus required, but they're unable to see the larger picture. So Jesus clears the air with this prophetic word in verse 23. He says, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left hand is not mine to grant. But again, Jesus reminds them who He is. He is the Son of God. And He's doing the will of the Father. He says, But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. So Jesus alone is the Son of God. And He alone knows the Father. He's come to do the will of the Father. He understands His role in relation to the Father. And Jesus alone Will be exalted next to the Father. Ephesians 1, we don't have time to look at it this morning, but Ephesians 1 outlines how the Father will exalt Jesus the Son. He alone will be honored, he will be exalted, he will be placed in authority in the position prepared by God Himself. So Jesus responds to this request with biblical truth. And then the, the passage tr- um, kind of transitions in verse 24. What happens in verse 24? It says, when the ten heard it, so there's the other disciples thereby, they were indignant at the two brothers. There's been lots of questioning, posturing as to why they were indignant, probably because that was the question on my mind. I wanted to ask that. Who knows exactly what this meant there. But this indignant response reveals a grumbling heart, a jealous heart, an envious heart, and it points back to all sins. I'm sure you've heard me say this. If not, hear it for the first time. All sins are associated to pride. They're all cousins to pride. All points back to pride. All points back to the greedy hearts within the Garden of Eden. And so Jesus reminds the disciples, he reminds us today of authority. Some exercise it to their advantage Others reject it, but those who seek the kingdom of God must understand God is the ultimate authority. We must submit to God and His authority. God places rulers and people in places to carry out earthly duties, but Jesus is reminding us today that we are not to seek authority in an effort to make our name great. Authority is not used to be abused. It's not used so that we might be great. Authority is used so that we might Submit to God, and we might make His name great. In Genesis 3, we learn that we want to be like God. We want to replace God, but our role is to submit to God. Whether through the children of Israel in Numbers or the indignant disciples, it's easy to say, there's pride again. There's pride rearing its ugly head. But we must recognize pride in our own hearts as well. That's why I love the way John Piper said in that video, we must ask for the miracle of humility. One pastor, Bishop Hall, put it this way in regards to pride. He said, Pride is the inmost coat which we put off last and which we put on first. Pride is the inmost coat which we put off last and which we put on first. That's why we must make war on pride and cultivate humility every opportunity we can. So Jesus teaches us through these last few verses on what it looks like to seek the kingdom and what it looks like to be humble. He says we must be a servant. If we are to seek greatness, Jesus teaches us greatness comes through service. A service that does not promote self but looks out for others, is truly kind and truly shows sacrifice. As I read Matthew twenty this past week, I thought about just how countercultural this chapter is. Yet we read chapter twenty and we—it sounds so familiar—and we think about who Jesus is and what he has done and his example, and it sounds very nice. But really, if we were a laborer, we would be doing the same thing. Yeah, I know we agreed on this, but you saw how it worked. I mean, surely I get three times. I mean, this is so countercultural to our standard in time. We, as followers of Christ though, live to exalt Christ, not ourselves. The world has a different standard. The world says we must live for self, but as followers of Christ, We must exalt Christ. Listen to this quote as we start to wrap up chapter 20. J.C. Ryle says this, Among the children of this world, a person is thought to be the greatest man who has the most land, most money, most servants, most rank, and most earthly power. However, among the children of God, he is reckoned the greatest who does most to promote the spiritual and temporal happiness of his fellow creatures. True greatness consists not in receiving, but in giving, in in going about and ministering to others. And we minister to others, this is put out of context, but we go and love and minister to others because we first love God. We first exalt Christ. So in verse 28, Jesus shows us that we are to be a slave and a servant, but he is just not talking the talk. We see that he's walking the walk. In verse 28, we see and we read, Jesus did not teach only about sacrificial radical service. He lived it, and he died as a perfect teacher. His example must not be overlooked. It says even as whoever whoever would be first among you must be your slave even as the son of man that was his often his title he gave to himself came not to be served but to serve he came to serve not to be served he was born as a baby but born as the son of God if anybody could have said I'm not, that's that's beneath me. I, I don't do that. It could have been him. But he came to serve. He came to serve the lame, the deaf, the lepers, the down and out, the widows, the orphans, men and women of all ways of life. Jesus' motives were pure, his methods were innocent, and his manner of life was impeccable. It's for this reason Peter calls us to walk in his steps Because He is our example. But I don't want to just stop there. He's not just our example. Verse 28 doesn't stop with, He came to serve. He came not to be served, but to serve. Now, let's look at the rest of the verse. It says, He came to give His life as a ransom for many. Here is the atonement, the substitutionary atonement where we, who are sinners, can have life. So He's not just an example to live by. He is an example to live by. We are to imitate Him in our steps. We are to follow Christ. But He is our Redeemer who came to rescue us. We're going to talk more about verse 28 this evening. But we must see Jesus not just as an example or a martyr, He came to die as a sacrifice for your sin. Jesus died so that you might be reconciled to God. He died so that you might have peace with God. He died and gave his life so that we might be delivered and rescued from ourselves. He died to redeem us from the curse of the law. He died so that we might not face the wrath of God. He died to satisfy the justice of God. He died to carry out the will of God. He died to glorify God. Jesus died so that you might glorify God in repenting of your sins and believing in Jesus Christ for salvation. He died so that the church, the redeemed of every tribe, tongue, and nation, might proclaim the profound wisdom of God among the world. But he also died so that he might be raised and seated at the right hand of the Father, so that He might be glorified. Yes, we are a part of the story. Yes, we are the ones in which He died for. But ultimately, the death, burial, and resurrection is about God. It's about glorifying God. And we see that in Jesus Christ being exalted. He alone is the one who is worthy of all praise. To God be the glory. Let's pray.